The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Ravinder Kaur. We talked about why India, despite its deepening alliance with the United States and the country's regional rivalry with China, has refused to join condemnation of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. We talked about India's tacit alliance with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, how Russian weaponry continues to be the primary source for India's military, and why, particularly amongst supporters of the Hindu nationalist BJP, and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, there is a striking degree of support for Russia within the country. If you've been finding PTO's coverage of the Ukraine crisis useful and interesting, then please do consider becoming a supporter of PTO on Patreon. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other, where you can give from as little as £1 a month, and you can also support the show in your local currency if you're outside of the UK. That address again is patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Russia Without Putin by Tony Wood. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues with horrifying consequences, our need for a deeper understanding of the Russian state becomes more pressing. Tony Wood's critically acclaimed book, Russia Without Putin, Money, Power and the Myths of the New Cold War, explores the profound changes Russia has undergone since 1991. Against the idea that Putin represents a return to Soviet authoritarianism, Wood argues that his rule should be seen as a continuation of the Yeltsin government of the 1990s. The core features of Putinism, an aggressive predatory elite presiding over a vastly unequal society, are in fact integral to the system set in place after the fall of communism. The West needs to shake off its obsession with Putin and look beyond the walls of the Kremlin. Russia Without Putin, Money, Power and the Myths of the New Cold War by Tony Wood is available from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Ravinder Kaur is Associate Professor of Modern South Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. She is the author of Since 1947, Partition Narratives Among the Punjabi Migrants of Delhi. And her most recent book is Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India. And you can find a PTO episode with Ravinda on that book in the description of today's show. On February 26th, India, which is currently a a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council, was one of the three countries that voted to abstain on the US-sponsored resolution that was deploring Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the other two abstainers being China, unsurprisingly, uh, and also the UAE. The Indian government instead called for restraint on all sides without making any reference to Ukrainian sovereignty or or territorial integrity. And then on March 5th, India again abstained, this time in the UN General Assembly, and two days later abstained once more in a vote at the United Nations Human Rights Council. 
Now, to anyone who's been just glancingly following Indian foreign policy in recent years, the position on Ukraine and Russia might seem somewhat surprising given India's increasingly close relationship with the United States and Russia's deepening ties with China, which at the start of February culminated in the joint statement by Xi Jinping and and Vladimir Putin, which affirmed a closer alliance between the two states, uh, described as friendship with no limits and, and no forbidden areas of cooperation. Can you explain why it's in fact not at all surprising that the Indian government has chosen not to overtly side with the Western powers against Russia? Thank you for such a great question. I think there is a lot of speculation going on as to why India took this stand. So there are a number of reasons and there is no single reason alone here. So first is, I would say, the weight of history here, that Indo-Russian ties are what you would call ties between two trusted allies. This is the term which is used to describe bilateral relations. And uh, in post-colonial India's history, uh, Soviet Union was the first state that it made an open-ended friendship pact with. It's called the Indo-Soviet Friendship Treaty. And that, of course, is the historical part. But increasingly, we are told that what really is tilting the balance is the question of defense supplies. It turns out that India buys nearly two-thirds of its arms from Russia, and Russia exports one-third of its arms to India. So those ties are seen as pretty uh, substantial. And considering that India is quite a lot preoccupied with China and the border conflicts it has, Russian arms supply become very prominent in this. Moreover, we are told that Russia's position in the Security Council, in the UN Security Council, has been very strong uh, for India on a number of key matters, for instance, on, on Kashmir. And for India, as you know, this is quite a key matter. And uh, repeatedly, the Soviet Union and Russia uh, was uh, very much in India's corner. Then I would say there is another thing which is not being so much talked about, which is that India itself is a very different country than it used to be, namely that uh, it also harbors its own big power ambitions. So ever since India's rise or India's emergence as an emerging market uh, happened in the last 30 years or so, the big power ambitions and the talk of a multipolar world is increasingly, it has taken, um, uh, you know, center stage in the foreign policy making. So in a way, when people are talking about non-alignment movement, that as if India is moving backwards into its, uh, you know, foreign policy take, I would say that this is not the non-alignment of the Nehruvian era we are speaking about, because that very much emerged from the moment of decolonization and had this anti-imperialist stance and a, and a great amount of moral political force, you know, within which it arose. So I would say it would be somewhat of a mistake to just imagine that this is 1950s once more, and this is non-alignment in a new kind of Cold War, because neither is India the same country, nor is Russia the same. And both countries have taken great strides towards capitalism, which is very entwined with the state structure. Do you think rather than non-alignment, do you think that India's doctrine of strategic autonomy is is a more more relevant factor here? So strategic autonomy is absolutely, I think this has long been something that defense experts, security experts have been talking about. 
But one word which we continue hearing among the policymakers is multipolarity. And that's something which began taking shape in the post-Cold War world. And that basically is not just multipolar as opposed to unipolar. I think here multipolar is also seen as where, you know, the entire world is divided into certain spheres of influence. So it's a, it's a, what I'm trying to say is that same words can have very different kinds of meanings. And in this sense, that this is a different kind of imperial imagination which is emerging. So I think it's both certainly autonomy. So all con- countries want autonomy, but I would say this is something more than that. And so would you say that although the United States might like a very tight binding alliance with India in order to counter China, that because of this sense of being in, in a multipolar world in the long term, India will just refuse to put all of its eggs in one, in one basket and will continue to try and maintain links with, with Russia, even in spite of Russia becoming, at the moment, a sort of pariah state, at least when it comes to the view of the North Americans and, and, and the Europeans. Well, I think tremendously important in this is the story of 1970 war. Because I think India at some point has been in a position in its long history uh, where it stood alone vis-a-vis an entire coalition of Pakistan, China and, and the U.S. when it came to the Bangladesh Liberation War. And at that time, uh, the Soviet Union came to its aid. And that is the first treaty, Indo-Soviet Friendship and Cooperation Treaty which became the cornerstone. So in that sense, I would say that India has ever since been very wary of being, uh, and by the way, this at this point, we are already out of the non-aligned sort of spirit. And here we are speaking about strategic calculations that while India had distilled towards the Soviet Union, likewise, in the beginning of 2000s, India tilted towards US also. So I think in that sense, these kind of shift between Russia and U.S. has happened on very key counts, namely, for example, with the nuclear supply issue. As you know, India is not a signatory to the NPT Non-Proliferation Treaty or the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaties. And this basically means that India is also outside that international you know, groupings uh, which have been formed. So I think given the fact that India became closer in 2008, 9, 10, uh, to the U.S., that meant that it was suddenly allowed, uh, you know, the one, two, three treaty, it is called, which allowed it access to nuclear supplies. What The point I'm making is that India uh, ever since has been worried to either be in the camp of Russia um, or the U.S. And this is not to say that there are no contestation within the Indian foreign policy thinkers as well, where some do say that we must put our lot in with uh, with America. And this is what has happened in the last few years. So therefore, I think a lot of people have been surprised that right now India is ticking with Russia. On that point about the differing perspectives on India's strategy, when it comes to the political elite, is, for instance, the determination, it seems, to uh, maintain links with Russia Is that a bipartisan affair? Do you see a substantial divergence between the position of the BJP and and Congress on the question of of Russia and strategic autonomy more generally? So what we have heard is a few scattered voices where people have had different opinion, where people have said, well, India should have voted along with the rest of the group condemning uh, Russia. 
but those are stray voices i would say uh, individual like people belonging to different parties but they would speak in individual capacity but what we have not heard is you know a wide uh, departure from the government line mostly the words that we continue hearing is well let peace prevail both sides should come to the table diplomacy dialogue is the way forward etc so in that sense no strong condemnation has been heard um, at this point going back to the invasion so uh, of course despite the friendly relationship between india and russia india was given no prior warning of the invasion and and it's much larger than expected scale and at the time of the invasion, there were 20,000 Indian students studying in Ukraine. One of those students was the 21-year-old Naveen Shekharapa, who was killed by Russian shelling and who was in his final year at Kharkiv National Medical University. Has his death and, and the plight of the students more generally significantly altered public perception of Russia and Vladimir Putin, in your view? I would say it has been very mixed, uh, surprisingly, that uh, one would have expected that the plight of students and especially this death would have uh, make some uh, difference. But we heard two types of responses. One was BGP party's machine, which is basically saying that, well, why were these students there in the first place? And the whole question turned around into that these students were somehow at fault, that they were at all in Ukraine, and which became a question of Indian education structure, that why is it, you know, that these students, they go abroad at all. So I think that was one word discourse. The other, of course, was more like there was a lot of sympathy for students. And there, I think the government sensed that these students need to be evacuated fast, and basically for uh, central government ministers were deputed to go there uh, to the neighboring countries to actually get the students. So this this literally became a PR exercise where evacuation of students has really filled a lot of uh, new space. So I would say that there is no single emotion at work here, that uh, huge emergence of sympathy. That sympathy was there, but at the same time, there has always also been, uh, you know, counter questions as to why students were out there at all. When it comes specifically to supporters of the BJP and, and Narendra Modi, do they have a certain sympathy for Vladimir Putin because they see him as somewhat similar to Modi as a political figure, a right-wing nationalist who supports business and, and, and capitalism, but but very much on his own on his own terms? Well, I think this is another one of those, uh, you know, surprising things which came about that uh, some TV channels were running a lot of praise of Putin, for example. And by the way, not many that I came across, they were in English language. Much of it was in Hindi, where Putin was being celebrated as a strong man, the one who is taking on the big powers. So I think there is a certain kind of fascination in India, especially with authoritarian strongman leaders people who make things happen or, uh, you know, who mean business or, uh, you know, who put up this very hyper-masculine, hyper-nationalist stance. So in that sense, uh, Putin does have his uh, many admirers and they see him uh, not in the same way like the rest of the world is seeing. As you've already mentioned, India receives huge amounts of uh, Russian arms and has done historically. I was reading up a little around this and, and the total estimate is $83.4 billion between 1950 and, and 2020, representing 65% of all arms transferred to India. And in December, uh, Russia delivered to India its S-400 
missile defense system, part of a deal signed two years earlier against US opposition. Do you think that the increasing economic isolation of, of Russia may lead India to try and diversify its arms imports away from Russia or perhaps try to, to further build up the indigenous uh, Indian arms industry? Yes, I think a lot of these speculations are going on right now. As you know, India has this flagship manufacturing program called Make in India. And the ambition has been to diversify or to bring many of these manufacturing projects home. But that also, of course, requires uh, partnership uh, in terms of procurement of raw material, technology, etc. So, of course, uh, it is not going to happen overnight, just from one day to the other. So, Russia has been a tremendously important partner, not just because it has technology, but it is also cheap when you compare to the Israeli or the Western suppliers. So, India's reliance is both in terms of technology plus cost effectiveness. So whether other companies can fill in space, whether US, France, Israel, the other arms suppliers can do it, uh, cost is a, for India, uh, it does matter, the price matters. So I think uh, you're right that uh, in the current circumstances, as uh, India is still trying to figure out how to keep up the economic uh, cooperation or, or in other areas like defense, etc., because suddenly with the, with the, you know as swift rules have changed and uh, russia has been isolated people are still trying to assess how is you know export import or exchange going to be affected in specific sectors there's this talk about doing bilateral trade with russia uh, using the the rupee and and, and yes. the ruble do do you think that will that will go ahead well, we have heard talks about it, but how is it going to be put in practice? Because we must also mention that there is something which is being said, but then on the other hand, there is also a lot of pressure on India from its uh, allies. And uh, India is in a little bit of a strange situation, in a tight corner, in the sense that uh, India finds itself right now sharing space with China, its arch enemy. On one hand, on the other hand, Pakistan. And this creates a very interesting situation where Pakistan, as you know, Imran Khan was the last state leader who uh, went to and visit Russia, met, yeah. Uh, yeah, Putin. So, on one hand, you have this relationship, and then Pakistan has Iron Brother Pact with China. China is a close ally of Russia, and Russia is a close ally of India. And this creates a very strange kind of uncertain, unsettling dynamic where I think it is very difficult to understand how India stands to gain from this. So India had so far, it had been the Indo-Pacific strategy where India allies itself with the, the Quad nations, Japan, Australia, US, and which basically with the glue which ties them all together is liberal democracy. And that was, of course, all which India is mining, the anti-China uh, sentiment uh, which had arisen during the pandemic. So in this situation, I think many people are puzzled as how India stands to gain in this kind of uh, dynamic because it has also miffed its Western allies. Do you think in some respects Pakistan is in a, in a rather similar position to India? Because there can be a tendency in, in some reporting to describe India as if it's very firmly in the, in the US camp, which, is, as you say, is, is, is not 
quite the case and things are rather more complicated. But similarly, Pakistan is described as being very firmly in the China camp. But we know that in particular, the Pakistan army would like to maintain its historic ties with the US military. And Pakistan was, of course, a very close ally of the United States during the Cold War. Well, I think uh, if we listen to the uh, Pakistani policymakers, uh, they would also have the same kind of approach, a very tactical, strategic approach to Pakistani-U.S. relationship. And at the same time, a closer relationship with China is what allows it even more space to maneuver or leverage with, uh, with U.S., Because if we look at Pakistani foreign policy, basically much of its external relations have been dependent upon its role as a frontline state against, you know, the war on terror. And even before that, if we if we continue going back, uh, you know, during the Cold War era, so which basically means that uh, the whole internal security politics of China, uh, where ISI plays a strong role or, uh, you know, the Pakistani army has a very important, crucial role. Uh, so uh, there, uh, the military state that is called, they would like to have this kind of counterbalance. So in this way, there are no permanent enemies or friends. And China relationship, it seems to be right now something which is offsetting the Americans. When it comes to India's attempt to maintain its relationship with Russia, both externally, but also within India. How much tension is there around the issue of of India as a a democracy, despite its own authoritarian turn under the BJP? The uh, political elite still likes to portray the country as, as, you know, as as a great democracy, the largest democracy in the world and so on. How much discomfort is there around that when it comes to allying with an increasingly authoritarian Russia? Well, I would say there is some sort of a strange contradiction, which is constantly at work. What I mean by that is that there are certain things which secure India's place in the world, namely its role as the world's largest democracy. And that is what opens many doors for it. Likewise, you could see that uh, in the current Ukrainian conflict, non-aligned movement has been brought out to make a claim that you see this is India's old study policy. Now, this is at odds with what happens within India. Namely, that first of all, everything which has to do with Nehru uh, within the current uh, you know, Hindu nationalist uh, movement, that is seen as something which needs to be erased. Because that is seen as something uh, almost like a stain in, uh, in the long Indian history. You know, this post-colonial period, 1950s, 60s, 70s, that needs to be redone. And this is what is being redone all the time. So this is why when one hears non-aligned movement being brought out, so one has to you know, pay attention to it. Likewise, another iconic figure, Gandhi, who is a global icon, but at home in India, within the Hindu national circles, he is not a hero. So I think this dichotomy works constantly. So in the same way, world's largest democracy is something which secures India its global place. Uh, but at the same time, it is also something which is, as uh, you know, it is moving in an illiberal direction. And this fascination for strongman leader is very, very profound. So which all goes against uh, the notion one has of a liberal democracy. So I would say that uh, maybe we should just come to terms with the fact that it is these contradictions of the internal 
politics of India and its external footing, that they are constantly at uh, tension with each other. And so would you see talk around non-alignment as being almost more for foreign consumption to, as you say, to try and impress upon people this idea that the Modi government is more moderate and can be seen within the lineage of of post-war Indian politics, even though that they internally would repudiate that? You know, I haven't heard any official person speaking about non-aligned movement, but there have been a lot of opinion makers and commentators in India and abroad who have been doing that. Because I think in their eyes, non-aligned simply means to stay aloof. But this was not what non-aligned movement was, because, you know, that was completely, uh, you know, when you speak about the spirit of Bandung, you're speaking about a vision of a world which is an anti-imperial world, you know, the world of decolonization. So that moral political force that Nehruvian policy or the Bandung came with, that is absent because these are cold calculations like everyone else. So, I mean, this staying aloof is very different. So I think this important difference needs to be made again and again so that we don't get confused that in 2022 something different is taking place. We're obviously still at a very early stage of the Ukraine crisis. Clearly, as we've discussed, India would like to maintain decent relations with Russia. But do you think a point may come where the pressure from the United States and Europe is is so great that it does, in fact, force India to to shift away from Russia, even if Indian elites would prefer not to? I think it all depends on how long this conflict is going to continue and uh, how harsh is going to be the impact. Because these are, as you said, still early days. No one really knows how the economic sanctions are actually going to work or, or what kind of impact it will have. A lot depends on China, uh, the kind of uh, role China wants to play. And thus far, what we have seen is that China is very keen on playing the peacemaker. And also because it wants to do away with that anti-China sentiment, which has arisen during the pandemic. So this is an opportunity for China to position itself in a different way. So China has constantly been saying that this impacts, uh, you know, global economy. And one must listen to that because, of course, China's might and rise all is connected with smooth functioning of the global economy. So when that is disrupted, a lot is disrupted also within national politics. So I think at this stage, both India and China and a few other countries, I think they're very keen on having some sort of settlement, some sort of negotiation, not for any other reason, but for the simple fact that uh, this doesn't work in those long-term strategic plans. This conflict has come in a way too early. Going back to the meeting between Xi Jinping and Putin in February and the announcement of this uh, friendship with no limits between the two countries, what's your sense of the reaction to that announcement within India uh, and particularly amongst Indian political elites? I think it's again a calculation where I'm not sure anyone has an answer to this, namely that, okay, that now India finds itself with China and Russia and Pakistan on one side. But imagine if a conflict breaks out between India and China, then what would Russia's role be? Who would it, you know, side with? So I think this is where no one has a clear answer because China has the greater uh, economic heft 
and Russia actually is going to likely rely upon it. If Russia is pushed into international isolation, then China is already, you know, sort of gearing up to come to its aid, right? Whereas in comparison, India does not have the same amount of economic uh, weight. So all these are open speculations. So I think I am yet to see anyone clarify where does it leave India? That, because it's a very careful balancing act that, uh, you know, Indo-Pacific is there. But then we have this, uh, uh, you know, this RIC, you know, Russia, India, China uh, set up as well. But I think all of this is speculative, uncertain, and very unsettling as to where this leaves India. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast application you use. And if you found this episode interesting and useful, it would be great if you could share it on your social media. It really does help bring the show to new listeners. Thanks for listening and for supporting PTO. I'll be back with a regular show soon.